0: So as we reach episode six in the series, Emergency on Planet Sport in association with Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, we're going to be looking more at the existential threat to sport. And I don't think there's anything more vivid, more dramatic, more visual than what's happening in the mountains and on the snow and on the ice. This is serious because it goes without saying that if global warming trends continue and temperatures keep rising, what's going to happen to that ice? What's going to happen to that snow? It doesn't take a scientist to work that out. Now, there's a lot of awareness on this issue within the winter sports community. Great work being done with a group called Protect Our Winters because these are many, many sports that rely on this very natural environment. And while we could potentially move a golf course or we could move a cricket pitch, can we move a mountain? A song from the 80s, perhaps, but in real life, It's not going to happen, is it? All we can do is plant fake snow around, as they're doing for the next Winter Olympic Games, for example. And is that really what we want? So this is episode six. My name's Jonathan Overend. This is the Snow Go Zone.
1: So where do we go if we have no snow? No snow. No snow. No snow. No snow. When winter's vacation requires explanation. When winter's refrain turns timid and tame. When winter's own is shown as a clone. When winter's aren't winter's problem, no? Industry weakening. Livelihood threatening. Temperatures rising, should it be so surprising? Ice caps, majestic like shards of ambition melting away against their volition the ice caps are melting can it be any clearer winter olympics get nearer and nearer <sighs> to fake snow to fake snow right right we'd rather pretend and go skiing through dust than acknowledge a problem so rarely discussed The climate emergency needs us to fight, to stand up to the crisis and start putting right the everyday fails which continue the flow. I mean, where do we go if we have no snow? No snow, no snow. The perfect
2: day in the mountains for me is in midwinter when it snows a lot overnight, maybe two, three feet, and there's this sense of anticipation. you will awake to the sound of dynamite as the ski patrol go around the mountain, blasting the dangerous slopes, clearing them of avalanche danger. in the Italian Alps, in Courmayeur, under the shadow of Mont Blanc. I'm a winter sports commentator covering predominantly alpine skiing. And a perfect day is when it's snow three feet and eventually you get out there and it's cold. It's really cold, You're, you're wearing everything you've got. And because it's so cold, and because you've had a lot of snow, then you ski in deep, fluffy champagne powder. It's light, it's easy to ski through. You glide through. Sometimes you get what's called face shots. So you can be skiing powder and a a lump of snow will come up and hit you in the face as you're going through it. You can almost get lost. There'll be tales afterwards in the bars of how, you know, I needed a snorkel, it was so deep, and we we found untracked snow. Those are the days we dream of. Those are the days that are more difficult to find. Back in the Alps in the eighties, it was regularly minus 20 for long stretches at a time, particularly in December, January, and February, the, the, the cold months, the winter months. In the last 10 years, the cold spells I've encountered on the mountains have been really few and far between. I was here in the Alps and I skied In Cormier in November, December, January, February and March last year. I would have skied in April, but the season was curtailed because of the uh, coronavirus. So I just skied in November, December, January, February and March. And I didn't put a hat on more than three or four times. I don't remember ever feeling particularly cold. There was good snow. We had good snow last season, but it fell uh, sort of above... 13, 1,400 metres, whereas, you know, you would expect the snow to be coming at around four or 500 metres above sea level. It, it was high and it never really got cold. It never really felt like a, a winter. It felt like spring skiing all the way through the winter. It's been inconsistent. There have been seasons when we've arrived in the Alps in November and the snow has been deep on the ground, waist deep on the ground, and the season is ready to start increasingly when we arrive the snow is pretty scarce and i'm in the italian Alps right now it's late 2020 i've been out walking today in shorts and t-shirt it's mid-november 2020 i'm at 1300 meters it's not right it doesn't feel right it doesn't feel as it should be and all the locals that i talk to say it was never like this back in the the 40s, the 50s, the 60s and most of the 70s as well, there was always snow in October and November. The season was always, not always, but 90% of the time the season would start on time with ample snow ready to go when the lifts started turning at the end of November or in early December.
0: Matt's mates in the mountains have stories passed down through generations. And one phrase keeps coming back. White
3: Snow in this region is often referred to by the locals as, as the white gold because it, it turned these people who were desperately poor 100, 150 years ago into very, very wealthy people. White gold. White gold. I'm Henry Schneewend in Val d'Isère, Val d'Isère, France. I've been living here for the better part of 30-plus years. Time goes by fast. White gold, to give you an idea, going back maybe 75 years ago or so, you had a couple that uh, were born (laughs) behind the ass of a cow. That's how poor they were. Within one generation, the parents turned that building that was full of cows and manure that they all lived pretty much together in, they turned it into a hotel and started making a bit of money. That's what the first parents and then their children built a bigger hotel in the same place. And then fast forward to let's say 2000, the late 90s, that that land was worth millions and they were making at least hundreds of thousands off of their hotel and they would have built a restaurant and they might have a ski shop as well. And the family, all of a sudden, is worth millions and millions. That's when the white gold was shining. Now it's becoming tarnished in a lot of lower altitude resorts. The white gold is still shining bright up in the higher resorts, like the one I live in here in Val d'Isère, but on the not so far horizon, we're very concerned about the future. Parents of of my age and younger, their kids, when they're sort of advising them on careers and everything, they're just sort of shaking their head and saying, look kids, you cannot rely on your ski instructing, which is in France is a very well-paid profession, you cannot rely on that anymore because it could be gone in the next 20, 30 years. If it gets that much warmer, the snow is not going to be very good and, and I think people are not going to be able to appreciate it as much and they might find other things to do, like, I don't know, go to the Bahamas or something in the winter. <laughs> Unless it gets too hot there.
2: The big... Snow seasons are less frequent, less regular, and everybody's a little concerned these days that uh, one day we're gonna draw a blank and it won't snow and there won't be a, a, a ski season. It's a fear now as I look, look out of my window. and it's, it's too warm. There is a fear, particularly in the lower resorts. The higher resorts will have a, a longer shelf life. The lower resorts, if they draw a blank, if they get no snow, and if they don't get any cold weather where they can artificially cultivate snow, on top of the fact that they lost a good chunk of their season in 2020 because of the virus, because of the pandemic, then there's a chance that some of those resorts that rely on winter sports will cease to exist.
3: If you look at the British... um Numbers of where people ski, uh, there's about 40 to 50 percent of the British skiing population ski in France, and they come to now to resorts uh, that are uh, much higher, like a minimum of 1800 meters, because the snow is guaranteed. On the worst snow years, these are the resorts like Val d'Isère, Tigne, that are in and around 2000 meters. They have uh, stellar seasons, whereas the lower lying resorts get trampled upon. Ski areas that start at like 1,400, 1,500 meters are literally getting washed away, especially the smaller ski resorts that their base level, uh, where they started from was sort of 800, 900 meters to about 2,500 meters. They've had to close. There's a lot of little ski resorts in the, uh, uh, like in the Grenoble area that started quite low in in altitude that have just had to close because um, they don't get snow, it's more rain they've just had to shut down at the lower altitudes
2: it's it's tragic it makes me very sad it makes me want to cry my my life and my career has been made around winter sports of all the sports that i play the one i do best is skiing it's the one that gives me the, the biggest thrill it's you know it's the, i've had my best some of my best family times on the snow with my wife and my children it makes me very sad i hope i'm wrong i hope i'm that, you know, maybe if governments begin to act that we can that we can change things before the tipping point. I fear it may be too late. And I look around at the glaciers, which 20 years ago were 100 metres longer than they are now. And I look at the efforts the resorts are making and some of them are covering their glaciers during the summer with protective material to stop them from shrinking, a massive undertaking. But they rely on the, on the glaciers being there to provide winter sports where others can't, you know, in the, in the warmer months.
0: Ice. Water frozen into a solid state. The next massive issue here.
3: Oh, man.
0: Deep into the icy mystery of the Alps, Henry Schneewind is your guide.
3: In Chamonix... And I've, I've been there quite a bit over the last sort of 30-plus years that I've been living in the northern French Alps. If you take the two biggest, I believe they're the two biggest glaciers in France, there is the Mer de Glace and the Argentier glaciers. Uh, glaciers, And they both, in the last 30 years, have receded in length 800 meters. So almost, you know, not far off a kilometer, they have receded up the valley, so that's like a visual that you can kind of uh, see the, the the huge impact of global warming and climate change, and you can also see. And many people who will be listening to this will have experienced going to the uh, the ice cave um, underneath the uh, the train station in in Montenvers uh, up from Chamonix to the Mer de Glace. So it's receded eight hundred meters from below. You go up to the Montenvers stop on the train. You go down a uh, Cable car 30 years ago uh, or 1988, you all you had to do was walk down three steps to get to the glacier. Now you have to walk down 600 steps because it has receded in in, in depth, it's gone down 100 meters. So, uh, if you can picture that, the two biggest glaciers I use the Mer de Glace as an example, but the same thing as the Argentier glaciers have receded up the valley close to a whole kilometer and in depth in certain places, about a hundred meters down. And that's just in the last sort of 30 odd years or so. I've gone to Chamonix quite a bit, and uh, that is the most visual shocking impact that I can give you.
0: To
4: most, that's no surprise. Meet Will. My name is Will Gadd, and I'm a pro athlete. My biggest achievement in ice climbing is definitely surviving.
3: Ice climbing is a that, that's a really cool sport.
4: As an extreme ice
0: mountaineer, this is Will's backyard, the glaciers. It's
4: just magic. Love it, even after doing it for so many years. Ice climbing is this neat mix between sort of ballet and, and medieval weaponry. You know, you're, you're, you get to move really well. When you're climbing well, you're, you're just moving. And at the same time, you're smashing things and using these claws on your feet and these maces in your hands to go up. And so I love that combination of delicacy and brutality in ice climbing. It's, uh, it, it just works for me. <laughs> it's a real sport, too. You know, as Hemingway said, there's like bullfighting, auto racing and mountain climbing are the only real sports. The rest are games, meaning that the, the sport can win. In in ice climbing, that, that is part of it. It focuses your mind when there's a lot on the line. In weather that maybe you wouldn't let your dog go for a walk, you're out there climbing vertical ice. And I think you want to keep doing it for a while longer, but it's a high hazard sport. So surviving, number one, that's the goal. Keep living. You die, you lose. I think, for me, ice climbing has always been magical. You know, you're, you're climbing something that is inherently slippery and dangerous and most of the time is an obstacle in life. But in ice climbing, you get to climb these blue streaks into the sky and it's so unlikely and uh, it's just great and, and just the experience of being out there and, and understanding the medium and how to move on it, how to stay safe on it. And it's unlike anything else I do in life, really. We first went to Kilimanjaro in 2014, and then again in, in early 2020, and the difference in only six years was absolutely astounding. Everything was half the size it used to be. We're just gone. We camped in a place that used to be under probably 10 meters, 30 feet of ice. It was just, you know, where would all that go? So as, a, as an ice climber, I rely on there being ice, obviously. Um, would you see your medium disappearing it's it's rather shocking you know for most people imagine if you walk downtown to your office one day and your whole office building was gone and in fact downtown was gone it, it would be a shock and for me that's what it's like I walk out there and where I do my sports it's it's often literally gone say you're you know you're you're a football slash soccer player and you you show up in your stadium and the stadium is gone that's kind of what it is for me and this is happening all over the world. It's not a problem just in Canada or Europe or South America or the Himalayas. It's everywhere. And because I've been visiting many of these places for so many years, I can I can see the change happening. And it's it's just it's just very very obvious. So people say, well, climate change is a theory. Well, that's bullshit. You know, it's I see it. In, it's happening in real time, right in front of right in front of me. And I invite anybody who. Who doesn't see that to look at the pictures and, and see what's happening? It's just very, very clear.
0: Clear as ice for the climbers. Clear for the skiers and the snowboarders too. Impacts all around. So what are we
4: doing about it? Solutions. We're all to blame, and likely me more so than other people. <laughs> you know, I I've spent a lot of my life flying a hundred thousand miles plus a year as a pro athlete that's been my kind of mode of operating is fly cool places do cool things and what I've come to realize is that this just isn't sustainable so I have to come up with a different way to do my sport and look at the world yeah I I don't want to be part of the problem to the same degree um, any longer we're all part of the problem I'm I just think I'm a lot bigger part of the problem so (laughs) I need to scale things back pretty quickly here and have I came off Kilimanjaro and started making lists on the plane home. What can I try to do? And one of them was eat less meat. I am not a vegan. I am not a you know <laughs> this is not natural for me. You know I live in a cold climate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So what can I eat less meat? And and the answer was again yes. And it's not that hard. So sort of we're we're roughly weekday vegetarians around here now and. You know, if I walk into somebody's house and they've served meat, I'm not going to say, no, you know, I don't think I want to yell at people or tell them how to live. But I can certainly reduce my impact just by eating less meat. So that's one thing I've done. Um, Another one is to drive a more fuel-efficient vehicle. That's that's important. So we have a much more fuel-efficient vehicle now, and I hope to go electric in, in relatively short order. What's exciting about this, too, is like, you know, people think, well you know it's all bad but you know my chainsaw broke the other day this is a two-stroke chainsaw it, it, it died after 25 years of oil service and I had to get a new chainsaw and I went into the store and, and I'm looking at them all and there's electric chainsaws like battery-powered ones and these batteries also run my electric drill and some other things so I'm like hey this is cool it's not all doom and gloom to make these small changes, you know. I really, I'm pretty stoked on my electric chainsaw. That thing rips, and it's <laughs> it's battery powered. I'm out there, you know. Instead of it being like, it's like and the thing. I just love this thing, and so I think many of the choices we can make, like I think we can make choices um, that are fun and good, you know, that that may reduce our impact.
0: But more than the everyday more than the food and the flying, the cars and the chainsaws. This is will getting political. This is about political
4: will. You know, all these things are great, but we have to, I think at a societal level, change how we operate. And to do that, we need to vote people in who will make changes and believe in this. So I think voting is probably the biggest thing and the biggest luxury and right that we do have and, and need to exercise, we, we do need to make personal changes. But if we don't make the big structural changes, then it, it isn't going to amount to very much, unfortunately. And, and I don't think that's depressing. I don't, I don't mean to sound depressing at all because I don't think it is depressing. I think it's exciting. It, it's, it's good. It's, <laughs> let's get after it. So make the changes we can on a personal level, but we have to make them on a, on a government national level also. Climate change is super stressful because we're not taking action in, in kind of the level we need to. But what can I do and how can I adapt to what I look at as probably inevitable changes going forward? I am trying to raise my kids so they are good at adapting. We are already past the point where we're gonna see, I think, some pretty radical changes. And we have to, we're gonna to have to adapt to those changes. And so I'm trying to raise my kids and, and run my own life. And, and COVID's kind of a dry run, oddly enough, for this that's that's what it's about to me adapt change what you can and adapt to what you can not
0: adapting the winter sports industry is certainly getting used to that Let's talk about the next Winter Olympic Games The Winter Olympics in 2022 will be held in Beijing Matt Chilton again It doesn't have a history of
2: winter sports it doesn't have mountains with lifts I mean it has a few now because they've built them and um, but it's mostly artificial snow that's used which has its own environmental challenges and impacts it should really in the grand scheme of things been awarded to oslo but there was a controversy which meant that it went there was a toss-up between kazakhstan and china and beijing won the games so it's difficult it, it, a lot of guesswork goes in to hosting uh, a winter olympics because you need the weather to be awful to provide the playing surface for the outdoor events and then you need the weather to kind of uh, be quite nice for play to begin so it's, it's a it's a difficult balancing act difficult for the organizers made all the more difficult by the change in the climate
4: no it's funny i flew to Beijing a couple of years ago the the ski runs they're developing for the olympics stand out as these odd white stripes and this brown sea of you know a scrub it's it's the weirdest place for a winter olympics i think i can imagine but it is cold there um relatively speaking you know there's there's canals and lakes that freeze up and and uh there's a huge group of people that that want to do these sort of middle class pursuits like skiing best of luck too i think it's a great idea i love the olympics as it does bring people together and and i think that's great but yeah <laughs> those stripes going down the hillside are
0: really weird so how does this china snow crisis compare with previous winter games that matt's covered over the past four decades matt to the podium please Thinking back,
2: 84 Sarajevo wasn't great, but it was very low. 88 Calgary was good, great snow. 92 Albertville Was, was pretty good. There was a two year break to Lillehammer, 94. Everybody remembers that as spending two weeks in the freezer. It was really cold, there was so much snow. Nagano, 98. Everything was delayed because there was so much snow. They just couldn't clear it in time. 2002 Salt Lake was good. 2006 Turin was good. 2010 Vancouver. It was warm. It was warm. It was warm. Sochi in 2014. It was warm. The cross country and biathlon events. A lot of them took place with the athletes wearing shorts and t shirts because it had got so hot. They'd had plenty of snow in January, which had saved them. Pyeongchang 2018. We were warned that it was going to be very, very cold. Oh, it's one of the coldest places. It wasn't. I can't remember it snowing once more than an inch while I was there. It was it was a weird, weird event. We see that so often, we get these cold spells, but they don't last very long. Suddenly it's hot again, and you're thinking it's too hot. I'm sitting outside without a hat and gloves on in February at 2,500 metres, that's not right. That's not how it should be. But increasingly, it is how it is. In the short term, it's not great because we're in Beijing for 2022. In the longer term, I guess we have to hope that uh, during those Winter Olympic seasons, the venues get lucky and receive sufficient snow to, to crack on. You'd have to say that
5: for winter sports and skiing, it's probably one of the things to which there really is an existential threat. This is Richard Black, director of ECIU. What we're looking at with mountain ranges, such as the Alps, for example, such as the Andes, is a serious retreat of glaciers and snow fields so we're talking about shrinking seasons we're talking about you know the altitude at which you have to go to ski going up and up and up one doesn't want to be too doom-mongery about this but it is quite hard to see how skiing survives certainly in those areas where it currently thrives i, mean, I guess you've got things like ice skating and ice hockey that can survive because that's in an indoor arena and so on and so forth but yeah for those outdoor sports it is really i think a matter of time it's
0: interesting richard mentions ice hockey the nhl one of the biggest sports leagues in the world is also one of the biggest players in the global sports sustainability space that's because they recognize kids getting into hockey start by skating not in the arenas but on the lakes the frozen lakes and if they don't freeze over as much as before Will that metaphorical pathway melt away? Again, we come back to that key word of earlier, adaptability.
4: Well, the pandemic has been horrible in in many ways, for sure. Hockey fan Will Gad again. But one very good thing that's come out of it is that I haven't had to fly as much and it's proved to people all over the world that we don't actually have to get on a jet to talk. There's Zoom and 12 other platforms or whatever out there we can use to talk. I've radically reduced the amount of flying I've done in the last nine months all the way to zero <laughs> you know, with COVID. So yeah, so pretty amazing. You know, I, I wish I could give myself a pat on the back, but I had nothing to do with that, obviously. It's, 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 uh, but it has proved a lot of things, right? Like c- climbing is about adaptation. You adapt to the world. The world's changed. And so let's adapt. And, and it's shown us a lot of great ways to do things differently. So COVID sucks. And worse than that for many people, I don't want to make light of it, but there are good things that have come out of it, I think, that we can use to go forward. I hope everybody just feels that and we learn that, like work from home, we don't have to commute. How What a difference that would make if a lot of the world just stopped commuting. I mean, imagine in, a, in, in Los Angeles or one of these giant mega cities in the world where you could just ride your bike to work or not go to work, you know, work from home. How great would that be? I think if there's one thing I stand on is that the, we have to adapt to the world. And I think Covid has shown us that we can adapt in different ways. And I, and I find that really inspirational.
0: And back in the French Alps, we find Henry Schneewind and Val d'Isère once more. From the skiing angle, he's also seeing both sides of this, what he
3: describes as the avalanche paradox. The paradox in terms of risk of avalanches and, and climate change is a lot of people are like, oh yeah, climate change is getting warmer, it's going to be more dangerous. The, uh, it's, it's become much more complicated. The warmer it gets... The, the, the closer snow uh, comes to its melting point, and like any other solid, the, the problem of avalanches and risk management for the infrastructure for lift companies and ski patrols that are there to protect the secured areas is becoming a real problem because you have more avalanches um, the warmer the temperatures get. But, um, and so they're having to, to, to change the protocol for pylons, there's a phenomenon called glide cracks, these cracks that form in the snow. They're not crevasses, they form in the snow and they hang over the, 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 the runs and the, the ski patrol needs to protect um, these uh, runs before they open them. And if they could come down at any time, which these sort of glide crack phenomena are, Because of global warming because of uh, the warming temperatures. They're very unpredictable uh, these this phenomena and so it's a real nightmare for the ski patrols because at any time they could come down. However, the warming and freezing, uh, which you get, warming during the day, freezing at night, is actually for people who are ski touring and off piste skiers, it reduces the danger. So spring skiing, even though there's springtime, um, there's more avalanches due to warming in the springtime, you, uh, it's, it's actually safer because it's uh, more predictable. Warming during the day, freezing at night, much more predictable. Most avalanche accidents happen in December, January and February and in north-ish facing slopes. It's actually this warming and freezing effect is helping to to make it more predictable and and less accidents will happen uh, for the skiers uh, who are touring and off-piste. Final word on this to Will gadd He climbed Kilimanjaro
0: six years ago and again last year in 2020. When we do astonishing things, we don't want those memories stained, I guess. So Will says he probably won't be back. It's sad but true. He's just too fearful.
4: I don't know if I'll go back to Kilimanjaro again. It's a uh, I have this memory of it, and I am worried that if I go back in another six years there'll be so little left that it's it's yeah, oh there is some some sadness with that. The snows of Kilimanjaro, you know, Ernest Hemingway's classic book. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if I want to see Kilimanjaro without without ice on top of it. Next time,
0: the Olympic-sized question.
3: As part of the sporting community or as people who care about sport, part of the conversation has to be, how close could we get to the spectator experience remotely. You
4: keep reinventing this urban impact
3: every four
4: years as you move from city to city.
3: I'll say that very quietly because
0: I think it'll be an unpopular suggestion.
4: I have a great idea. We're going to have a huge mega event that causes incredible environmental destruction. Uh, It creates a huge carbon footprint. And by the way, we're not going to reuse the buildings. We're going to go to another place in four years time. I mean, why would you do that?
0: Professors and scientists, coaches and athletes—how sustainable is the greatest show on earth? Or don't we really care about that as long as we can wave a flag and pull a BBC One all-nighter? Keep the conversation going on Insta and Twitter at Planet Sport Pod and binge away. The whole box set of eight episodes is available right now. Emergency on Planet Sport is a ninety-four nineteen production for Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit.